Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, this week's episode of Dead Cat. This is Tom Dotan coming to you here. It's a late night episode uh, recorded on the weekend with Eric Newcomer and Katie Benner. We're all here. We're all here. We finally broke the seal in talking about crypto, uh, which I got to think will not be the last time. By the way, on that topic. So, you know, we tweeted out the episode and I said something to the effect of like, I think every reporter probably needs to just like suck it up and learn at least the terminology. And immediately I was DM'd by another reporter. I don't want to say his name because uh, I didn't ask for his permission, but he was like, you coward. You coward. Why are you, buy- why are you buying into this? Like, just call oh, a spade man. a spade. This is bullshit. No. This is fantasy land. That's uh, crazy. Wait, which, which, which part is the fantasy land? You know, there's so much going on in the, in the marketplace. <laughs> I think the fact that I said crypto was worth taking seriously enough for reporters to at least understand the argument and the terminology. I thought it was a pretty anodyne statement. How is that? That seems incontrovertible at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, people have made billions off of it. Like, even if it was all like uh, what a multi-level marketing scam or whatever, it's still just the scope of it. It feels like worth knowing. And, and I obviously don't believe that's the case, but it feels like just the sheer money. It's crazy to me. That well, my argument was just like, what else are you going to talk to people about right now? Like, no one wants to talk about anything else. What are we going to talk about? Just like Uber pricing all day? Like, no. Like it's, you got to do something. And so it's just like, at the very least, like develop a common set of terms that you can, uh, that you can engage on. Although the, the, the GM thing, the good morning thing is like in undeniably stupid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's stupid or not, I think it's, I agree that if you're going to try to debunk something, mm-hmm. you need to actually speak the language of the thing it is that you're trying to debunk. So if you want to poke holes into you know, something like residential mortgage-backed securities, you should know what a residential mortgage-backed security is before you launch a full critique. Right. Well, at the very least, if you don't believe in it, then there's a lot, there's so much money invested in it that's going to be a good story one way or the other. Absolutely. Like, like people are getting fleeced if, if the whole thing is a crock of shit. So at the very least, prepare yourself for the stories of how it all fell apart, and then you can at least say how smart you were because of that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, the history of business reporting, you know, what junk bonds. I mean, you know this so much better than I do, Katie, but like, you know, there, there have been all these scandalous financial tools that then go on to be useful things in the economy or companies like Amazon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can't, and you can't talk about why they're scandalous and you can't explain to people what happened if you refuse to learn the terminology of the product. You bought Bitcoin like a long time ago, right? I what? You bought Bitcoin a while ago but I you sold did. it or what? i did i just it just sits there just how sits much did there. you buy just a bitcoin big regret <laughs> big regret because i thought because i think i bought it at like 118 dollars oh was my like, god wait so it wasn't a full I was like oh my god do i want to spend 200 dollars on this thing no, you bought a go. whole bitcoin right yeah yeah oh, so that should be that's tens it's, of thousands. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, oh, okay. I, I, I thought to myself, <laughs> I, I thought to myself, well, it would be so stupid to spend more than $100 on this thing because it's going to go to zero. But then I thought, well, maybe I should buy like 10. And I thought, that's so stupid. And I bought one. Oh, my God. I've never bought them because I've always had this terrible, like, purist reporter instinct that I'm slowly trying to shed. I clearly 
I mean, first of all, I should How experiment. can this be? You left us for Substack. I know, but I'm, I'm still a goody-goody in terms of, like, conflict. I made my first political donation um, <laughs> the other day, which I can you just Can done. you disclose it on the show, please? Was it a conflict for me to buy a Bitcoin? I'm actually serious. I don't know. I was, especially well, since I, was I knew I was going to be... Percentage. Like, I, you know, like, I, was it a conflict? I, I donated to my, to my friend uh, Ben Samuels, who's running for Congress in a suburb of St. Louis. So supporting right, well, your friend. Let's avoid talking about him on the show for your integrity. <laughs> He's a Democrat. Uh, no, I just mean God. like, you, I don't want you pumping up his numbers by just promoting him on the show. <laughs> Tom, Tom and I do not endorse this candidate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I haven't made my selection yet, but I'll let you know. Um, we'll have like a big, you know, New York Times Hulu show, The Choice, where we figure out who I'm endorsing in that race. <laughs> but I do think Ouch. I do need to buy like, a little bit of Ethereum and Bitcoin. I mean, I, I, I actually think the conflicts there are probably almost greater to an extent than owning in a company because, right. I mean, at least it's it's changed a bit now because there's so much more invested in it. But there was a time where an article about Bitcoin could materially influence the price. I think actually there was a reporter who right. wrote about now, this. Now, I mean, there's a whole, there yeah, whole I never wrote about publications Bitcoin. that are right. set up to keep a lot of attention. Oh, uh, yeah. Jim Ledbetter. Jim Ledbetter has a whole publication, I think, yeah. about Well, he has a newsletter and then he works for somebody. But then there, you know, there's obviously Coindesk has been around. There's, um, yeah, there, there's a bunch of um, uh, the block. Um, I mean, they, they break news. I like some of them. I follow them on Twitter. I mean, it, it, but yeah, there's plenty of, they certainly own crypto. I mean, there's obviously the counter argument that not owning it. I mean, not to parrot their language, but not owning any of it, having all your money in dollars and traditional equities, you know, is a is a position. You know, there's right. no true neutral. The position's called being poor. I think that's silly. Yeah, exactly. Like it's some a lot of it's just access. We should just divert. What do you mean? What? It's it's just access. Like you know, I didn't not have stocks growing up and in college because I was taking a position. It's because I was broke. Sure. Obviously, if you have no money, but once you have some money. You mean like if you already have a portfolio to not diversify into crypto? Right, exactly. Right. I would never want to be in a position where people would consider me outweighed in crypto. Well, what's the requirement now? I haven't really, di- I haven't really diversified into private equity, timber, um, you know, <laughs> venture. and I just do whatever either, the Harvard so. Management Company is doing. Like, <laughs> that's how I take my cues. Yeah, it's like I've, I've taken my 401k <laughs> and turned it into a David Swenson style <laughs> asset management. I do think with Bloomberg, I got, I'm in like dodging cocks. I'm in some of the like managed but good at managing uh, funds in my 401k because Bloomberg likes to have fancy stuff in there. I'm just saying we're kind of going far afield from crypto here now, though I would love to know what Bloomberg is offering. Well, Daniel, in our conversation, uh, the Dispo CEO, who I very much enjoyed, was, uh, you know, he sort of said, oh, 7% or something in crypto. That's not necessarily, and that was a small, I mean, he, he was, you know, talking about somebody who was 100% Ethereum. But, <laughs> but I, I do think if a reporter were, you know, 5 to 10% crypto, they wouldn't be conflicted necessarily. Well, they should. I mean, I, I do they ask you, do they ask reporters to disclose it? Like at the Times? I haven't I haven't checked with Insider. Uh, I, if I mean, request I, would they ask me to disclose a stock holding? I don't even cover business. I mean, like if I went and bought like... Bloomberg, we couldn't own individual stocks. We couldn't short. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't. I don't know what. The or we could are. own individual stocks, but it was a pain 
you had to tell them which stocks and it couldn't be on your beat and then you probably couldn't write about it. So I Yeah, just, it makes sense I that never you shouldn't did. write about you right. shouldn't own stock in the companies that you write about. But I feel like That's, business yeah, writing about tech, you're you're you know, you're making implicit statements about tech relative to other industries. I don't know. I mean it was literally something I did at two in the morning after I'd had a lot of drinks. It was I didn't really the Bitcoin, it. it was smart. Yeah, I just yeah, I, mean, I had I had you, and I I, I think just, we were I, working with you at the time. Uh, yeah, I just but it, I we we'd prob we had probably gone out for those drinks. But I wasn't there for like the asset management <laughs> like, discussion. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had exactly. invested. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we probably went out somewhere in the mission and had some cocktails. We were at the 500 club or whatever and then I went home and I was like I'm buying a bitcoin. I'm doing yeah, it. Kitty, you neglected us. You you were worldly. You knew things. I should have texted you guys. You should have you guess what like, I'm doing right now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, I thought you guys were my friends. <laughs> but anyway, I do think reporters should probably spend the time learning the language to be able to have at least semi-coherent discussions. Yeah, very just controversial learning the basic take. terminology. Be smart I think about of... what you write about. With increasingly, you know, incoherent people. But um, so yeah, that'd be like if I was like, I refuse to learn what an indictment is. I'm just going to do this job and <laughs> fucking not know yeah. what that is. <laughs> Our early audience on this show is definitely uh, reporters who try to manage like what our, you know, 100 person audience <laughs> believe. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, uh, how, how could you say that about me? Or, you know, oh, right. No. <laughs> yeah, we're one step away um, from a Colin show. But but I do want to I do want to talk about Ben Smith's column. OK, yes. Walk us through. What is the column? The column that Ben wrote, which uh, came out uh, last Sunday, was basically talking about why reporters have suddenly gotten so interested in labor. And you know, that was very focused on a paper that I hadn't heard of in New York that was bought, um, that was, you know, diving into a lot of the union activity in New York City specifically. But, you know, we are in this period that, you know, well, we're in November now, but all the strikes that happened in October um, is something that has been heavily covered by a lot of the press. And I think the question that Ben was asking was like, you know, why now is, you know, have reporters decided to jump on the story that some reporters have been covering for decades, but it hasn't gotten a ton of interest, but it seems like it's caught on in a way now. And I think he's, you know, was drawing the comparison that reporters are in unions. There's a ton of digital media outlets that have unionized. I work at one uh, that voted to unionize uh, right, right when I joined. And for me, it was, it was personally interesting because I was on, I was at a company previously that was not unionized and I was on a beat that was completely uninterested in that particular, like the, the beat reporting in media, no one really cared about the unions. They do now, which is interesting. But at the time it was all about, you know, what are the consolidations and acquisitions and shit shows uh, that are happening at the corporate level. And I chose to leave uh, to cover a beat that is very much interested in labor. And so I, I thought there was going to be some discussion in there about like, you know, what what has changed that has caused reporters to take interest in something that is still, you know, low level. Compared well, to, you know, Ben Ben had to deal with all the union negotiations at BuzzFeed and was on the right. side of management. So I did feel like he he threaded his media story in this case as more about sort of these interesting weirdo outlets. It wasn't so much about sort of the hip kids of digital media being obsessed with unionizing and those beat reporters. Right. It, it went in a different direction. But I, I, just bringing it to tech specifically... You know, I mean, Eric, you wrote years ago at the information, a story sort of suggesting that tech workers should unionize. Workers of the world unite. What Tech workers of the world yeah. unite. I think yeah. that was a Jonathan Weber, uh, who is our editor at the moment, uh, 
He he definitely should have, you know, a ghost co-writing credit. That's very a really much, uh, evergreen Weber story <laughs> as well. Because right. um, he 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 would love every industry to unionize. Sure. Well, I mean, it was a very prescient article. I mean, it, because it just I mean, you made the point that software engineers are so in demand they should use their leverage to extract stuff. But by and large, they haven't from their employers. But it was partially about, you know, getting benefits for themselves, but it was also you know, these companies are so powerful, they should use it to redirect those companies. And we're sort of seeing that. But again, it's like, I mean, we've talked about, you know, the Apple employees protesting. And the Apple employees really made it about uh, their working conditions and not about, you know, factories in, in China. So I, I do think a lot of the, the labor movement from engineers certainly has been around sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But then sort of general working conditions. But it's outside of the process of a typical union. Like the Google workers, workers, there, there, there is a Google union. I, I don't believe it has more than a thousand members. But aside from like releasing statements here and there and putting some people on the record, they have no real power. And I know like at a corporate level, Google is very dismissive of them. And then there's a few other startups that unionize, like Kickstarter and a few even less known ones. But it really hasn't taken off in any serious way which I maybe naively thought it was going to at the beginning of this year, but we're at a point and I I don't know, I don't see it getting much better anytime soon. And so as a reporter that's interested in labor and tech, it's gone in a very different direction than I was. The bosses won, they just fatigued. Yeah, I haven't, honestly, not covering the beat, there was, you know, you know, all this movement and you're right, it's been quiet. What is, what is sort of the headline? It's, it's hard to write the non-story, but what is it? I think what happened is that people that were upset about their jobs, instead of trying to band together to make their jobs better, they just left their jobs. <laughs> they just decided to, you know, freelance or, or, or cobble together, you know, up work like work or just bounce around for, for a couple of months from place to place. This is a controversial thing to say these days, but isn't that part of how American capitalism is supposed to work? You don't like your employer and you go to another company, like, I, I don't know. That that seems like a default reasonable way to correct corporate action, you know, if everybody's leaving because they but don't it like- it doesn't correct corporate action because the market's not tight enough for that to correct corporate action. Certainly not in tech. That would only correct corporate action if there are only 10 engineers. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys believe in them, but what, 100Xers or whatever. I mean, the super talented employees where, where they go certainly does have an impact on companies. Yeah, but they've all like they don't have connections to other, you know, their coworkers to a degree, right? Like they're not as interested in saying like, "Hey, join with me and I'll push for something better that will improve the lot for everyone here." Like they're more like, "Shit, I'm a star. Let me see how much I can get from the company here, and and maximize in that way." I mean, it's it's like the engineer version of joining a Substack, right? I have a question. Do you think that some of the reason why unionization didn't really take hold in tech in the way you were anticipating is cultural. It's about how the employees view themselves and their jobs and their companies. You know, just, I I will say I'm just finishing the book Uncanny Valley. I know that I'm coming to it like a year after it came out. I haven't read it yet. Is it worth it? Did you like it? It's sort of weird to read because we were all actually in San Francisco at the same exact time that Anna was. And Hmm. so her descriptions of the companies and the places are bringing back a lot of memories. But, you know, there's a scene where she talks about seeing somebody who's homeless wearing a GitHub sweatshirt 
And uh, she mentions this to one of her colleagues and is really disturbed by it. You know, she sort of sees it as this sort of like ultimate expression of how horrible the wealth gap has become. And his he goes, yeah, that's a bummer. And then there's a long pause and he's like, I wonder who gave their sweatshirt away because we're really not supposed to do that. You know, he's like, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> misses the point. But uh, people love the imagery guilt. You know, when you're thinking about something, when you're thinking about something like labor and you're and you're thinking about something like labor movements, the p- reason you join, you know, the, the idea you join, you also sacrifice part of your paycheck. Um, you become part of an entity is because you are thinking beyond oneself and right. because you are trying to think about how to make a company improve on a deeper cultural level. Yeah, I, I know is I know a certain union that uh, had a little finagling about how much uh, they wanted to give of themselves. But I'm just saying, like, paying dues in general right. as, just right. as, a, as a thing. <laughs> I'm just talking yeah, New York Times Union, obviously. Like, that you pay dues and you become part of an organization. You only do that, you only go through the trouble if you actually think there's kind of something wrong. But you have to do it. Like, once there there's a union, well, right. well, well, it's not like an individual choice. Your colleagues decide. And then your co- you right, but you need a mass of your colleagues to make that decision, and it's not going to happen in a culture where people, outside of diversity and inclusion issues, it's not going to happen if people are like, well, yes, I mean, we should probably hire more more black people. That's a bummer, but ultimately, we actually think that this relationship between the owners of the company and the workers in the company is just fine. How will you ever? How will unions ever take off if that's the culture and that's the way people? But think? you're saying. You're saying companies can still do diversity and inclusion without unions, but otherwise there isn't the juice? Or I just want I'm I w- saying like beyond the question of diversity and inclusion, is there anything driving people in the valley to think, in oh tech my gosh, specifically, this, yeah. It, in tech to say, right. oh gosh, like I really don't like this arrangement for myself. I really feel disadvantaged. And only by banding together with my fellow workers can I can can I rebalance this inequity. Well, it's it's a weird if you're a white collar worker at Google, right? It's like obviously if you're the top person, you don't have a strong incentive. And then if you're in the middle band of engineer or product manager or whatever, maybe you have an, a financial incentive to improve the average. But then if you really embrace the ideology of the union, you should be helping, you know, the contractors, the bus, you know, all of a sudden it's like oh, we're actually going to erode the nice white collar work we have because if we really think broadly... Well, this is why I'm saying it's a cultural question. Right, right. Right. But I mean, a lot of unions are pitched. I mean, I'm not a scholar in the history of unions, but a lot of them are pitched as like self-interested, right? Like it's good for the specific workers who are signing up. It's not some political project. Is that naive? Like, isn't that? Well, no, it's, no, it's, it's saying, yes, we have an interest in doing this, but you yourself alone can't improve your situation. The only way for you. Right, but, but each individual voter who votes yes is supposed to believe it will help them. You're supposed to get a majority. But what I'm trying to say is that the only way to pitch, basically the union pitches you, the individual Eric, your work life, you don't like it. But you, the individual Eric, can never change it because you don't totally. have enough power. But, but I have to believe that it helps me. So that is why you that is why you band together with others. So even though the pitch is you even though the pitch is, as you put it, self-centered, it implies the only way to fix the problem is to not be self-centered. Right. But I think culturally, like you're sort of circling around, a lot of these people don't believe it will actually help 
Well, that's them, what I'm that's right. what I'm saying. Or or will ever help them. But I don't know if I think they're wrong. I mean, <laughs> how much better off can they be? I mean, well, this is the question because because what it comes down to is not necessarily your state right now, but the state you could be in. That if you're in a point in which you do not have, you're not an ideal situation. If you are, you know, threatening to be fired or your compensation isn't what you think it should be, you have no recourse to push back on at all, other than get another job. Right. Like BuzzFeed's a great example. Like there was a time when BuzzFeed's valuation was really huge and there was no, you know, the, the, the idea that employees there would want to unionize when it was like the really fun media company, the interesting media company, the media company that's flush with cash, the media company with interesting stuff happening with money, where there were people making money too. What's the incentive to unionize? And of course, now, years later, when fortunes took a turn, there's there it is. That's the incentive. Right. And I don't even know with BuzzFeed specifically how much of them were compensated in stock that they thought like, oh, you know, we're going to the moon here and everything's going to be great. But I think part of the issue that you guys are talking about is there's no historical connection to the union and the labor movement within tech, that it's still a relatively new industry. And with a lot of, the, you know, like John Deere that's striking now, yeah, there's been over probably a hundred years or something of union activity within like the tractor world. Um, but it's it's building up from such a standing start. Did you listen to the Chapo episode about the a- activism at John Probably, Deere? yeah. I, it was su- I can't remember. It's super interesting. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's exciting. I mean, because they have exactly what you're saying. They have a legacy to it. They, they sort of really understand it. They're bought in. They see how it's going to help right. them. And I've seen, you know, I spent some time talking to the Google union, the Alphabet union. And, you know, they're interesting. They're, they're nice people. They clearly care about this idea. I mean, there's a little out there beliefs on their part that they think they can influence like who Google does business with, which, I mean, that would be incredibly powerful if they could. I mean, that's the stuff that you know, employees that are unhappy with their company. I mean, that's real change. That's a lot more, I think, than just issues with diversity and and whatever. But they're never going to be able to do that. There is no way that the Google union... In what company can employees do that? Like, I don't think there is one. Within tech, none. I mean, I spoke to some... I mean, like banking? No. Like, you're a teacher at a school. You're an elementary school teacher. You can't. Well, you couldn't even get the the universities to divest from oil, right? I mean, they're slowly doing it now that maybe it's a bad economic bet. But if you can't get nonprofit universities who are doing research to divest, the idea that you're going to get a company that to, you're going to get Google to yeah. not get mil- you know yeah. do military contracts. I, I mean, no, it's, that will it's, never happen. It's a heavy lift. Just on the media side, I right. mean, right. I do think one way the unionizing fits into the tech story is just, I think you know there are people in tech, not not these workers unionizing, but you know, sort of the leaders who see reporters like being active you know, organizers and just very on one side of the labor movement at a time when part of the story of tech is tech companies fighting with their own labor organizers. And I I do think it feeds into the notion that reporters are more and more willing to just pick a side, that they're expressly pro-labor, which makes them right. pro-worker who's protesting against their employer. And that just means that on every one of these sort of anti-Apple, Google, Facebook stories, you know, reporters are clearly on this side of the whistleblower, the worker. Which is where I thought Ben's column was going to go. It, it didn't really in the end. But yeah, there's no question in my mind that reporters are trying to like gun it a bit 
on the labor side and, and juice these kinds of stories. And it's, it's really antithetical to what reporting is supposed to be. Like, I realize that part of forming labor unions is to bully people into posting like Twitter pictures, or apparently that that's what, <laughs> no what comment. labor organizing is now, right? I mean, you have to literally scold people into like put, putting your union in their Twitter avatar. But it just seems reporters are supposed to be sort of individual thinkers, people, you know, uh, unaligned necessarily. And then the unions well, are demanding that they participate in this movement with all sorts of ideological commitments. Katie, please push back on me if you disagree. I mean, I, I just I, like... I, I'm not saying that labor is this issue, but at what point does it just make sense for reporters en masse to make some decisions about how they cover an issue and come down on a side? So, for example, when reporters were covering, you know, the march across the Pettus Bridge and they're watching, you know, people get their shit beat out of them by cops because they were trying to... (laughs) (laughs) like partake in a civil rights march, you know, there was a reason why the coverage wasn't like, well, on the one hand, the cops, the cops do this. But on the other hand, civil rights marchers are doing this. There was a reason why the coverage was John Lewis just almost died on this bridge. And if he does, he'll be a martyr for one of the most noble causes that's happened in the country in decades. But I I do think to counterbalance that, if you're going to take a stance, it's good to be sort of open with what you're values and sort of approach is. And I don't think the view from no, nowhere like journalism is willing to really admit well, I, that. I was just saying, I don't think that is the view from nowhere. I don't think you can have view from nowhere on some issues. I, I By the way, even though I do think, you know, a lot of reporters are juicing the labor issue in tech more than the momentum actually allows for, I don't think it's gotten that extreme, except when you just flat out miss the story. And that to me is like the biggest problem you have when you're, you know, your biases. Uh, push you towards thinking something is bigger than it is. And like, right. to me, there's no better example of that than the Amazon warehouse. Absolutely. Boat. Like if you read the coverage and basically every mainstream publication, it was like, Amazon's going to have a union tomorrow. A hundred percent. Like you oh thought God. like this right. thing was going to be an overwhelming slam dunk thing. And, and where's the recrimination? Everybody just fucking moves on with their life. It, it, it was a big miss. I, I, I do think that's the reporters should get things right on their beat. And and you can tell when they're cheering, when they don't care about getting it right, they want to help an outcome along. But there was an excellent story about that after the fact. Not the media side of things, but Harper's actually randomly did, did well, a really good. great... I mean, yeah. because they're, again, they're free of the narrative. I mean, they're not always good, but we ignore them when they're bad. And when they're good, they penetrate. Well, the story was written very, you know, from a very pro-labor reporter. Like, I'm sure he's someone who's like submitted pieces to Jacobin or something. Right. But... The story actually took time to like go to the warehouse in in Alabama and talk to some of the people that were against it and, and that were for it. And the big takeaway from that piece was that the younger people who've never been in unions, they didn't really grow up in that environment, didn't understand the value of it. And they don't view working at Amazon as a permanent job. Mm. And so for them, it's like, why should I invest, you know, my time, lose a little bit of my income in furtherance of a union working at a company that I don't really want to be on, you know, be at in a couple of years because I really want to be like a, you know, an influencer and and start my like Instagram makeup label or something. And Amazon, by the way, completely benefits from that. You know, like they run ads constantly talking about like work at Amazon will help you, you know, go to college, get a degree. And, and that theoretically would mean you don't have to work there anymore. But yeah, I mean, like the real reporting about that after the fact explained extremely well what happened there. Uh, but I think Amazon was freaked out by it too, right? Like they read the press coverage. They saw all the stories talking about like the rising anger at this warehouse. Well, they know it's existential. I mean, if you read Brad's right. book, 
uh, Amazon Unbound, sort of the sequel to the Everything Store. Very enjoyable if you if you care about Amazon. It's like a great book to read. And maybe I was naive going into it, but coming out of that book, if I had to pick one major theme, it is just like Amazon is in every way set up to avoid unionization. And from top to bottom, that company is like, we'll do everything they can to kill a union, which, you know, yeah, is pretty dark and, and speaks to the power of unions. For well, Uber is the same way, right? I mean, you you know from covering it during its earliest, right? Yeah, you know, to middle I mean, stage, inherent to the. I mean, I mean it's mean, it's existential for them. U- too. Uber is such a. Well, I mean, I I was for the California proposition. I mean, it, U- Uber is a marketplace. I mean, <laughs> that's inherent to the business. Anyway, that's a long yeah yeah fight. But, but a lot of these tech companies are. I guess my point was that they are existentially you know, connected to the need to not have a union among their large uh, labor workforce. Right. But yeah, I I do think Amazon was misled almost by the reporting that happened. Because remember, there was that period where, you know, the head of Amazon's warehouse divisions was out there tweeting, like in response to Bernie Sanders, uh, which apparently other stories were saying was uh, after being, you know, pushed by Bezos to do this, because he was worried that they were losing like the battle for public opinion on this front. And I just think ultimately they don't care that much about, they don't need to care that much about public opinion. Like the, the, the momentum is so much behind. Well, they do. I mean, Am- Amazon's more popular than the media, than Congress. I mean, it is one of the most popular institutions in the United States. So they definitely need to care about public opinion. They don't necessarily need to care. I mean, about on this issue, the media's opinion, right. And they need to understand that people's assessment of Amazon is as much shaped by going to amazon.com as it is what they read in the New York Times. And so they have a lot of control. And sometimes getting drawn into the fights that the media wants them to is probably a losing proposition. And that's extremely frustrating for reporters who want to frame the narrative. Yeah. My last thoughts on this is just that I would have thought after the, which it's been over a year now since since the Amazon warehouse vote, that they could, um, you know, this could have been a time for reporters to recalibrate the way they cover labor and, and try to at least accurately convey to readers where, what the temperature actually is and what most people want to do. And, you know, I, I guess I theoretically am included in that group. Yeah, of I'm people. curious. What is your position on the beat? I mean, obviously, you've gone strong on GoPuff and it's like, OK, we have this sort of bubbly, new, emergent startup world that's going to have some of the same excesses of logistics and food delivery of the past. So that's like a clear thesis that comes through and is smart. But I do feel like you're sort of in this tough position where you're not going to be the rah-rah union, partially because you're expressing this thesis that the rah-rah reporters have overstated it. But you're not really, you're not going to take the pure, I mean, what's what's the, I mean, not like it's pure narrative driven, but like, do you see like a through line or direction? I, I think the answer is no. And I think, but because it's no, it really just means that it's going to be status quo and and status quo is to not have any large cohesive at least in the US movement of you know organization among like gig workers you know drivers and, and delivery workers and and i think that is you know it's incredibly hard i find not to complain or whine but it's hard to report on because it's it's even hard to get a fair sampling of workers at this like one one of the typical things that reporters do if you want to like interview drivers is you 
you can go to I email Harry Campbell. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. They're, they're, <laughs> this guy runs the Rideshare Guy blog, and he yes, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's there's guys like Harry Campbell who's really nice, and I email him too. I like him a lot. Yeah. I try not to go to him to get drivers. Um, I will say he's better than going to like CalRideshare.org and all these other you know driver advocacy groups because they you know literally put the same people on the phone in multiple articles, which if you think right. about is is insane, right? There's like, so many drivers. There's so many drivers. And drivers How should turn so much. Like, how can you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you go to what's even worse, I think, is is go to Uber right. or Lyft and or, say, well, like, I mean, the classic me- reporter strategy is like, hey, advocate on one side, you give me six drivers and hey, Uber, you give me six or whatever. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I did a story about drivers sleeping in their cars. There, we literally went to a grocery store and talked about drivers. And there is a degree to which, I mean, obviously, if you're taking a lot of Ubers, you can talk to drivers and it's it's super interesting to get it. Uh, the range right. of points of view. Well, that to me is the best way to do it. I mean, it's very anecdotal. You're literally. I, mean, I was in this Uber with a guy who was literally like, "Yeah, all the other Ubers aren't working because they're getting unemployment and like they're lazy." <laughs> or they wasn't even they're lazy. They're just like they're making an economic calculus. They're making more on unemployment, and you know, like no leftist reporter wants to really put that in right. print. But I was it's from the mouth of an Uber driver. I mean, the, I think it was Uber X. It wasn't like Uber black or anything. And it was just sort of like, I'm out here hustling. Like I had a failed business, you know, other people aren't working right now. I'm still working. Like, you know, they're getting unemployed. Yeah. I mean, that was his point of view. And it's, I mean, drivers are not, I mean, this is sort of a through line of democratic party politics throughout, like, you know, the working class people in the party or aligned with aren't, aren't, don't necessarily share the same values as the media. Elites. Yeah, because they haven't worked in unions, a lot of them in the past, or if they have, they didn't have a good experience with it for some reason or another. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's probably the best way that I've found to get any sort, at least for Uber drivers, is to just go in and, 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 and talk to one. And it's anecdotal and it's just one sampling, but it's much better than going to the advocacy groups or the companies and saying, give me someone who's going to give me a quote. But that's what most reporters do. Well, isn't that completely Completely the problem of politics today, which is why people are mystified when they see that minorities have voted for Trump or they're like confused about why women have voted for Trump or they're like not understanding why blue collar workers don't want to support Democrats when Democrats have always owned blue collar workers. And it's like maybe it's because you don't talk to anybody. Right. Maybe it's because you only talk to consultants. Maybe it's because you have no ground game. Or the advocacy groups that they the consultants put you in you know in in contact with to get to the the workers themselves. I I didn't I didn't rank Eric Adams. I wouldn't have voted for Joe Biden. (laughs) You know, it's just like I'm so disconnected now. Now I'm like, oh, Eric Adams is an exciting mayor, but it's like it's just fascinating. Well, Eric Adams is going to make New York City the best story. I know it's for the next few years. My temptation to go to the metro desk (laughs) is huge, huge. He's 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 fascinating. Um, He's. He's going to be an amazing person to cover. I'll put it that I, I, way. I just went to it. Sarah Joe, my uh, girlfriend, uh, has a film coming out about Andrew Yang. I just went to the premiere <gasps> oh, today. How, did, how was it? I'm so excited. I know it was that great. that was a really it tough really thing good. to get interviews for. It was, it's amazing to see. You know, I've seen lots of the cuts along the way, but to see a finished product and then, lo- you know, in a theater, um, it's good. And it's fun to listen, you know, to the the audience laugh at the right things and sort of, um, so I'm excited. I think it goes on online for real in December, but you know, Eric Adams is, is a big character. That's the second time we've mentioned him on the podcast too. I'm, I'm oh, excited. really? He, well, yeah, he's like we all over about- my life. I mean, it's fat. It's nice to have a mayor that feels like New York. I mean, to Blasey was just so bad. You know, it just, you want like this sort of cultural standard bearer in a mayor. 
And Eric Adams is like, oh, yeah, I went to two clubs. You know, they already got him, like, parking on the sidewalk, blocking traffic. <laughs> they're they're tracking. He's he's going to be an extraordinarily interesting <laughs> person to cover. I'll put it that way. But I think that one of the reasons why a lot of institutions, especially mainstream institutions, are surprised by how people behave, whether it's workers at companies wanting to or not wanting to unionize, whether it's how people vote, whether it's how people feel about economic issues is because they already presume that they know based on market research style data about demographics that that continues to make less and less sense every day as the country changes. You know, this idea that by 2048, the country would be, there'd be more minorities in the country than people who are white. The presumption was that that would mean that we would have this like really liberal country. Demographics are destiny. Obviously, that's not right. true because it presumed that people weren't white cannot be conservative, right. which is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> right. Like, hello, because I have melanin, it means I can't have a conservative point of view. That's literally insane, especially when you look at who immigrates here and you look at if you spoke with people, you might understand that their values, they come to the United States with values based on their own beliefs, not based on the color of their skin and how that's supposed to fit into some sort of like demographer's view of right. who people are. Turns out a land of opportunity message is very popular with people who come or, to the Or United a religious States. message. Right. right. You know, well, also, it was also the belief, I think, not I think, it was the belief on the Democrats' part or their consultants' part that like, well, the Republicans are so racist that there's no way they would ever want to support them. You kidding me? And it was like... It's like, well, people are a little complicated and like, plus, if you're <laughs> I mean, not going to do are anything. more complicated than that. Yeah. Also, like if your policies aren't going to directly benefit their lives on a regular basis, like I think they can. Or if your economic benefits come with a system of values imposed, crammed down, crammed down people's throats that they just don't agree with, they're not going to care about the economic benefits. But I think that one of the reasons why it is hard to pin down where tech is going to be on labor issues is because we have a really limited view of why people would or would not right. want to unionize the issue and the issues they actually care about, which can actually only be discerned by doing what you guys are doing, which is actually talking to people on the ground who are working these jobs. You know, the idea that they think of the jobs as really short term is an extremely compelling reason not to unionize. Like right. when my dad worked in unionized industries, you know, he worked in factories it's because people thought they were going to work those jobs for their entire lives. Right. And they had reason to. And so they were like, if I'm going to be in this for yeah. the long haul, I want to make sure that I get pay increases and that it's safe. You know? And job swapping is in some ways an alternative to a union because you're... Absolutely. They're if competing for you and you can right. go it's, somewhere it's else. Right. It's the market and... and Right. And there are a couple of ways to deal with disempowerment. Sorry to be so straightforward. It's such a big No, no, it's like, true though. If people move jobs every two years, do they need a union? If you're mobile and people who are just staying at a company where everybody who's skilled is moving around, it's like, why? If you're staying there, you know, I, I just think go to a new job. Right. No, the, the job hop, hopping is another form of empowerment that if you don't think you're going to get it from a union, or if you don't think a union is necessary, or you don't believe in the the purpose of a union, yes, leaving your job every couple of years and negotiating to go from, you know, Google to Facebook to Apple to Uber is another way of empowering yourself. What was the last thing? I wanted to talk about, you know, The Verge came out with a piece saying we're going to push back. You know, well, uh, here's here's the red meter audience loves. On background. I mean, this is I, who's listening to this podcast? Certainly. Like, no, 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 I'm not joking. Reporters, this is actually PR people. Like, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, yeah, like yeah, everybody no, in the story shaping and founders who want to know how it's 
how how these things actually get talked about. Um, yeah, ex- yeah. Explain explain what the Verge's stance was in their very. I mean, the Verge article. basically. I mean, like every re- reporter wants to have more official company statements on the record, unless sort of with weird on background attribution. And then it basically had a list of absurd cases. Tom, do you want to pull it up and read a few? Okay, so the, the, the article is headline updating the Verge background policy. And it's Neil Patel, who is the editor-in-chief. Co- yeah, he's the main guy. He's the good. main guy at the Verge. And yeah. he basically is saying, we as a company or as a, as a media organization have made the decision that we will no longer allow companies to comment on background quoted as a source familiar with the matter or a person close to the company. I don't even think they want to do spokesperson. They just want to name the name. Um, and it's as the, the examples that he gives in here. A major car company's head of communications told us an April Fool's joke was actually real on background. The joke was not real. That's just lying. Yeah, that's uh, not, I mean, a, that's right. that's that's not a good example. A food delivery company insisted on discussing the popularity of chicken wings on background. Yeah, these are pretty stupid. Right. Uh, I feel like my, my like, big beef I'm, with them is they I, just I agree trivialize, with them. These are dumb examples. Right. They trivialize the real. They don't really give you the plausible case for why background's good, why companies would want to do it. And and the very, just how one-sided and sort of laughable and seemingly like inarguable their post is, to me is exactly the reason background is good because companies can't trust reporters all the time to fairly construe their argument, but still feels entitled to defend themselves. So if you're in a case where you don't trust a reporter, but you still feel like you should be able to be heard, you talk to them on background and say, listen, here's the argument. You you misuse my words whenever I give you something on the record, but here it is. Yeah, I thought that post was sort of just like a classic argument for why I wouldn't trust reporters for just like every word I'm saying on the record. I guess where I come down on this is you as a reporter or I guess a media organization should just make whatever decision that makes the story as transparent as possible as who you were talking to for it. And if you're talking to sources that can't be named because they would be fired, then you make that clear in the story, which a lot of organizations do. And if it's a company, you should just afford them the same level of transparency. And I I do think it's annoying and probably misleading to audiences or to readers to say a source close to the company when it really should be the company. And I think mm-hmm. as reporters, you should push back as much as possible to not use that language. When it comes to using their name specifically, I don't really care that much. I mean, my big issue with The Verge is like, yeah, it's purely from a reporter's point of view on something that has a lot to do with PR and it doesn't really surface what PR people think, which is bad reporting. Well, sometimes it's like, oh, I won't attribute that because I sometimes sort of know it. Because I know, I know it 90% from something else, but I might not have done it if the PR person was like, yes, you're right on that. Right. But then you're not actually attributing it because now you're sort of And like, you're not right. attributing it to them. Or there are times when we give people that benefit of the doubt because we need them for something else. Right. Let's be realistic. Or there's right. sometimes we don't give people the benefit of the doubt because they've screwed us. Right. So, I mean, so I, I just think that this, this idea that you're either presenting rec- information on the record or you're presenting it on background and that is simply a transparency issue is a little bit simplistic. I just think we're in a case where companies like to say no comment and then they want to include within the story something that doesn't sound like it's coming from the company but clearly is. 
And yeah, if that's if, what you want, there's so many ways to get that information out that's not the company. You know, right. get get one of your gajillion board members to say something or get somebody who was in the meeting in question to say something. Right. Like, you don't have to. Right. And I guess, what is it? What do they call it? The journal? The Barney rule but, or something? But reporters like to play all sorts of, I mean, reporters love to play naive when it's like, oh, this executive at Facebook is talking to me on background. That's not authorized. That's a source. But come on, like. It, like it's got to be coordinated with the company in some cases and they're not going to stop taking that information and putting it in the story. So I, I, I just think a lot of these tech reporters, it's not, they're just mad that it's like sloppy on the, that it's coming from comms. Well, <laughs> I, I'm actually agreeing with you. I'm just saying that exactly. I think that communications departments, if they're good, get lots of information to reporters that don't come from the company, right? Yeah, have you have you ever written a profile of someone before? Right. All right. Let's just let's just insist the dark arts. You know, get a, get a little no. more savvy. You know, just they can't have comms in the title. They, if you've ever like, written a profile, you know, you call the company. You're like, I want to write a profile of Jamie Diamond. It's like he won't like, talk, but all his like, friends They're like, no will. fucking comment. And then suddenly <laughs> right. you get calls out of the blue right, from random right. people who may right. have known Jamie Diamond. His art teacher loved him. I actually him. like that. <laughs> that, that, that's a yeah, right. But I, I like that that version of the arts. It's not some purist. Sure, I guess if you take it as total like real politic. It's like, yeah, we're pushing back against lame background information from commerce right. departments. That, well, that's we really want, what we mean. We here. want you to really work for it and make right. it seem like it's we real. Want it spicy. So, so we have the artifice to give our readers like a, a seemingly well-reported story that was actually assisted by company. PR. I have a feeling we're going to need to revisit this issue with a PR person and we can <laughs> on the record and we'll, we'll take him to, we'll take him to the woodshed on, on this particular <laughs> practice. And they can tell us their dark arts and how they get all of their cool friends to call us. And we suddenly have board members that never wanted to return on calls so before, down. saying very positive things. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.